launching into a new summer teaching series. So we just wrapped up a six-week series on generosity. If you missed any of those, you can go to our website or our podcast and, and listen into those. But uh, we're going to jump into a new teaching series, and the title of the teaching series is simply Legacy. Legacy. And what we're looking at is we're going to look at our place in his story. His story obviously being a little play on words from the word history, that uh, his story is a part of history. And so I want to take some time here this morning, since it's our first message in the series, to really lay the foundation for the series and, and then we'll jump into part one of the series. So first off, let's look at what does legacy mean? What are we talking about when we say legacy? Well, the dictionary definition of legacy is this. Anything handed down from the past as from an ancestor or a predecessor. So anything that is handed down to you from somebody before you is a legacy. So a legacy could be physical items like an inheritance. If your family passed down to you money or property, that, that inheritance is a legacy. But legacy is also culture that is handed down to you. It's history. It is family stories that are handed down to you. It's the way you do things as a family that is handed down to you. Anything that has been handed to you from an ancestor or a predecessor is a legacy. And therefore, in this particular teaching series, why are we calling it legacy? Because regardless of the Christian past of your family, every one of us has thousands upon thousands of years of legacy that has been handed down to us from God. And we find it in the Bible. We find it in the stories of the men and women in the Bible who lived out their lives for God, who maybe made mistakes and struggled and God restored them. Maybe they did the right thing. We even learn honestly from the people who did the wrong thing. And all of those men and women from the Bible are handing a legacy down to us that is going to help lead us and guide us in the life that we have today. And so we're going to have two goals in this teaching series. The first goal is this, that we would have a greater understanding of the entire Bible, how it is put together, and how it tells the story of God. So what we're going to do for these, these uh, summer months of June and July is we're going to break down the entire Bible from cover to cover. I know that seems like a lofty goal for just two months, but uh, obviously it's going to be an overview. But we want you to understand the Bible and how it's put together and why it's put together the way that it is. And so every week we're going to look at a different section of the Bible. Every week we're going to give a different, uh, just a little factoid about the Bible so you can understand um, why it's put together the way it is and, and that you can understand greater how to read it. So the second goal then is that we would see every story and every character in the Bible that we would see that they have something to teach us today. We want to experience our legacy from all of these men and women of the Bible so that we can understand that they're still teaching us stuff today, that the Word of God is still depositing stuff in us today to help us live our lives today. So we want you to understand the whole Bible from cover to cover, and we want you to see that everything in the Bible applies to you today. So you say, well, pastor, why are those your goals? Why, why are we doing this this summer? Well, because of this. If we accomplish these two goals then everyone in the church is going to be more likely to read their Bible. Because let's be honest, what are some of the reasons that we give for not reading our Bible? One is we don't understand it. Pastor, I try to read it and I just don't get it. I, I don't understand it. 
So if we can understand it more, we're probably going to read it more. The other excuses we give for not reading the Bible are usually because, well, it's just really old stories about really old people that just don't apply to me. And so for that reason, it's kind of boring. So I don't really want to read it. Well, if we would understand that all of those really old stories and all of those really old people are still speaking to you today and they're bringing life to you today, then it won't be so boring and you will want to read it more. So we want to accomplish these goals so that by the end of the summer, every one of us is inspired to read the Bible more. And why is that important? Because reading our Bible every day is the number one indicator of spiritual growth and successfully fulfilling God's plans for your life. Did you hear that? It is the number one indicator. That means it's above church growth, above prayer even. I know that's shocking, but reading your Bible every day is the number one indicator of spiritual growth and successfully fulfilling God's plans. I'm going to introduce some different studies to you guys throughout this teaching series, but here's the first one I want to introduce to you. There was an organization that did a study, and what they found is there was a tipping point when it came to reading your Bible. That if you read your Bible three days a week or less, there was no difference in the way you lived your life. But if you read your Bible four days a week or more, that fourth day was the tipping point. And for people that read it four days or more, the change in your life was significant. So again, keep this in mind. Three days or less, there was insignificant change. Four days or more of reading your Bible, you have a 57% lower chance of getting drunk. You have a 68% lower chance of having sex outside of marriage. You have a 61% lower chance of looking at pornography. You have a 74% lower chance of gambling. Four days or more of reading your Bible and all of these behaviors begin to decrease. But not only does it decrease negative behaviors, but it increases the behaviors of your faith even more significantly. Listen to this. You read your Bible four or more days a week and you are 228% more likely to share your faith with others. You are 231% more likely to be discipling somebody else. And how about this one? You are 407% more likely to memorize Bible verses. Reading your Bible every day is the number one indicator of spiritual growth and successfully fulfilling God's plans. And if you say, Pastor, I don't like all that science and research stuff. Just tell me the Bible. All right, I'll just tell you the Bible. Psalms chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So if his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And you say, well, that's talking about the law. No, when this psalm was written, the law was their Bible. That was all the Bible they had. Now, when we read the law, we have the whole Bible. So if we delight in the whole Bible, and in the whole Bible we meditate day and night, what does it say? It says we will be firmly planted, we will be fruitful, we won't wither away, and we'll be successful in whatever we do. Reading our Bible every day is the number one indicator 
And so as your pastor, I want to do everything I can to help you read your Bible every day. And I believe that this summer teaching series is a part of doing that. It's encouraging you to do that. So I've got this slide that my wife and I put together. Now, I know if you look at it, you're like, that's too small, Pastor. I can't read that. All right. That's okay. I don't expect you to read all of it. What I want you to see on this slide, and the reason I wanted it all to fit on one screen, is because this is the big picture of the Bible, all on one screen right here. First thing we need to recognize about the Bible is that it's 66 different writings that have been compiled together throughout history. And those 66 different writings were penned by nearly 40 different authors. Why do you say nearly 40? Because some of the books, we don't exactly know who wrote them. So we can't give you an exact number of authors. We can just get close to the number of authors. 66 different writings that were compiled throughout history. And those writings are divided into what we call the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Testament or the New Covenants. What is that? Well, the Old Testament is, is basically the Jewish Bible. And what it is, is it tells the story of God's people under God's first covenant with man. And God's first covenant with man was based off of following the law, being a part of God's nation of Israel, right? And so the Old Testament, which has 39 of those 66 writings, tells the story of God's people Israel, how they started, how they lived throughout history. Then the New Testament or the New Covenant is God's second covenant with mankind, which he made through Jesus Christ. And so everything in the New Testament starts from Jesus and goes forward. And that's 27 of those writings. What we've done here is we've taken the Bible and we've broken it into eight different sections, which is why we're going to spend eight Sundays talking about the Bible. We're going to spend one Sunday focusing on each one of these sections. So as you can see, the first five books of the Bible are called the law, and that's what we're going to focus on today. And then you've got the history books of the Old Testament, you've got the poetry books of the Old Testament, you've got the major prophets of the Old Testament, and you have the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we have the Gospels and the book of Acts, we have the Pauline epistles, which are all the letters that Paul wrote, and then we have the other apostolic epistles, which are the letters that the, all the other apostles wrote. And so as you can see, we're going to take the Bible and we're going to break it down and we're just going to do an overview from cover to cover. I'm going to give you a factoid every week. So here is factoid number one. Here is your first Bible fact that is going to help you understand the Bible. The Bible is not assembled in chronological order. Now, most books, if you go to the bookstore and you pick up a book, chances are if you start reading from page one, and read it in order all the way to the end, it's going to make perfect sense because that's how books are written. And so that's how we read books. The Bible is not assembled that way. Remember, the Bible is not just one book. The Bible is a collection of 66 different writings, and they are not assembled in chronological order. And so if you start just reading the Bible from the beginning and reading through it, it's not going to make sense because the story doesn't go in order. So Antonio, if we go back to our overview slide, what I want you to see is the first five books pretty much go in order, even though Deuteronomy is kind of a recap of the first four. And then in the history books, 
it kind of follows the order, but then what you got to realize is that the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles overlap each other. They cover the same time period, right? And then after you get to the end of the history books, the whole rest of the Old Testament, none of it is in order, all right? None of it goes in chronological order. Everything for the rest of the Old Testament fits into all of the history books. And so when you go to read a book in the Old Testament, what you want to ask yourself is, where does it fit? So if I'm going to read the book of Job and it comes after Esther, so I'm assume that it's just telling the story after Esther. No, it doesn't. Job actually fits in the book of Genesis. Job is from the time of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, right? And then you get to Isaiah and you say, okay, I'm reading the book of Isaiah. Where does it fit? And when you understand where it fits in the history, it's going to make a whole lot more sense. Same thing with the New Testament. All of those letters from Paul, they're not in order. They're not in chronological order. You would think, geez, at least put them in the order he wrote them. No, they didn't even do that for us. So when you're reading all of those letters from Paul, you want to find out where do they fit in the book of Acts so I understand who he's writing to and why he's writing it. Same thing with the other letters from the apostles. The Bible is not in chronological order. So every time you read a book of the Bible, you want to ask yourself the question, where does it fit in the timeline? And if you don't know, that's why you want to have either Google it or, or use a Bible app that, that has other information in it to help you understand where does it fit. So that's your first Bible factoid. The Bible is not assembled in chronological order. When you read it, you want to ask yourself the question, where does this fit in the timeline? All right, with that being said, we are now going to jump into part one of our series on legacy. And part one is on the books of the law. And so what we're going to look at is we're going to look at our legacy from Moses. The first old character that has something to give us today is Moses. And we're going to look at what Moses has to offer us today. But before we do that, let's do a quick overview of what we call the law. In Jewish tradition, these first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. So you may hear them called that. You might hear them called the books of the law. You might also hear them called the books of Moses because Moses wrote most of these five books. Why do I say most of them? Well, because at the end of Deuteronomy, it says Moses died. And I'm pretty sure Moses didn't write that. Okay, so I'm pretty sure Joshua probably finished that last little part of Deuteronomy after Moses died. But Mo so they're called the books of Moses. And so let's look at a quick overview. What, what happens in Genesis through Deuteronomy? Well, it begins with God created everything in the world, including making mankind in his image to have a special relationship with him. So the beginning of the book of Genesis, God creates everything, and he creates human beings different and unique and special, and he creates us with a purpose for the earth, and he creates us to have personal relationship with him. Well, then what happens? Humans were infected with a sin nature, and so God needed a way to redeem mankind back to himself. So from the first humans who chose to sin to every human being who was born after that, every one of us is born with a sin nature. But God doesn't want to leave us that way. He wants to redeem us, and so he needed to launch a plan to redeem us. 
because he got tired of just constantly punishing, right? First, he flooded the whole earth, killed everybody except for eight human beings, had to start over from scratch with those human beings. And then when those human beings started going rampant again, he had to scatter people all over the earth and confuse their languages, and, right? He, just, he constantly had to punish and try to slow down the sin of mankind. And he got tired of that. And so he wanted to have a plan to fully redeem us. So to begin that plan, he makes his first covenant with a man named Abraham. And the covenant was pretty straightforward. Abraham, if you will follow me and follow my commands and my statutes, I will be your God. I will be with you forever, and I will bless your seed forever. That was the covenant. What was God doing? He was establishing a nation. And so from the first three patriarchs, which were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God forms a nation, a nation known as Israel, out of which he can bring forth a savior. So God set aside an entire nation of people, an entire people group, set them aside as a special people for himself, just so that out of that special people, he could bring forth a savior. That was his plan. Then we introduce the character of Moses. And Moses leads this nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and towards the promised land where God wants this nation to be established. God left him in slavery for 400 years. You say, well, that sounds kind of cruel. If God was trying to set them aside, why would he do that? Because he needed somewhere where they could grow into a large enough population to be a nation. Because when they were taken into slavery, the nation consisted of 12 families. 12 families isn't even big enough to fill one village, much less a nation. But within those 400 years that God left them in Egypt, they went from 12 families to somewhere between 3 and 5 million people. Then they were ready to be a nation with 3 to 5 million people. And that's when he brought them out of Egypt and began them on the journey towards the promised land, the land where they would settle. And then what happens, and why are these called the books of the law? Because through Moses, God puts a law into place as a temporary form of redemption until the Savior would come. And so this law included sacrifices that they had to do, how they had to worship, how they had to live, the way that their nation was structured, the way that they would uh, engage with God, the rules that they had to follow, uh, the feasts that they would celebrate. All of that was included in this law. And the purpose of the law was to redeem Israel long enough until the Savior could come. So the book of Genesis tells everything from creation up until 12 families being ready to start a nation and those 12 families ending up in Egypt. And then in the book of Exodus, we begin to see the story of going out of Egypt and, and traveling through the wilderness and we begin to learn about the law. And then the book of Leviticus, whoo, that's a hard book to read, let me tell you, all right? So if you think the Bible is boring, don't start with Leviticus. It'll just ruin it for you, okay? The entire book of Leviticus is just a law book. It's about as exciting as reading the IRS tax code, okay? That's all Leviticus is. Then you get Numbers, which tells more of the law and more of the people's journey through the wilderness, including the wars that they fought while they were in the wilderness. And then the book of Deuteronomy is like a big recap of the whole story leading up to Moses dying 
and Joshua about to officially take the people into the promised land. So that's the overview of this first section of the Bible called the law. And our key character in this is Moses. And so today we're going to look at what is Moses' legacy to us? What does Moses have to share with us? Well, I'm just going to camp out just early in the book of Exodus. We could, we could look at tons of different things about Moses, but I just want to camp out early in the story to see what Moses could teach us. For those of you that don't know the story of Moses, as the nation of Israel grew so large, three to five million people as slaves in Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt started to realize these people are getting so big, we're not going to be able to keep them under control. And so he enacted a policy to stop the population growth of the Israelites. His policy was to murder all of the baby boys. And it was a, a shocking policy and it was a dreadful policy. Similar, might I say, to our generation now and the, and the culture of abortion that we live in now. They were murdering all of the baby boys. Well, when Moses was born, his parents didn't want him to be murdered. And so they hid the baby as long as they could. And when they couldn't hide him any longer, they put him in a basket and pushed him out in the river, just hoping that God would take care of him if he floated down the river. Well, when the basket floated to shore, Pharaoh's daughter found him. And so Moses was actually raised in Pharaoh's house as one of the children of Pharaoh. They knew he was an Israelite. They knew he was an Egyptian. He knew he was an Egyptian. But he still grew up in Pharaoh's house. And that's where we're going to jump into the Bible verses today and look at a few things that Moses wants to say to us. Here's the first thing that Moses wants to pass on to us as our legacy. You ready for this? Don't take matters into your own hands. Moses wants us to learn this lesson. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, says this. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brothers and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, Hebrew being another name for the Israelites, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely this matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of the matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Right, so Moses committed murder. And you might say, well, it was kind of justified murder. No, it was not justified murder. Moses committed premeditated murder. Why did he do it? Well, think about this. Moses' calling in life, his purpose in life, the very thing he was created for by God and preserved by God was to lead Israelites to freedom. That's how he was wired. Whether he knew it or not, that was the hard wiring that God put in him. That's what God prepared him for, was to lead Israel out of slavery. That means that something in Moses' DNA, something in the way that his spirit was wired, got angry at injustices against his own brethren. Because that wiring was eventually going to have him be the one to lead them out of slavery. 
But here's the thing. Even though he was wired that way, when he took matters into his own hands, he did it the wrong way. Right? He committed murder. And you say, well, maybe it was just a fit of rage because he saw somebody being mistreated. No. It says he looked to the left and he looked to the right. Right? When you're in a fit of rage, you don't look around to see who's watching. You just fly off and kill somebody. It says he looked to the left and he looked to the right. He wanted to make sure nobody was around. And then he murdered this Egyptian slave master and then buried him in the sand so nobody would find him. He took matters into his own hands. And he faced the consequence of that. What was the consequence? He was exiled in the desert. He fled to the desert of Midian. See, here's the thing. God wires us a certain way. And so there's going to be certain things that we respond to, and maybe we don't even know why. Because God wired us that way, because God has a purpose to use that part of our personality or that part of our emotional response to do something great. But what can happen is we take matters into our own hands, and we take that passion that's inside of us, and we do it the wrong way. Or maybe it's because of our own selfish desires, we do it our way instead of doing it God's way. Or maybe Satan comes in as the enemy of our souls and he twists it inside of us and takes something that God meant for glory and twists it and uses it to draw us away from our purpose. Right? You can look at the things that you struggle with. And you say, am I struggling with this? Because God wired me one way, and I'm trying to take it into my own hands. Why do I fight with my spouse so much? Well, maybe there's something wired in you for justice. But when you take it into your own hands, you're only fighting for your own justice. And so you're fighting with your spouse all the time. Why do I always end up in the wrong relationship? Why do I always end up with people that mistreat me? Well, maybe it's because God wired you to need somebody. But you keep going after all these other people instead of waiting for the one that God wants you to need. God's wired you a certain way, but when you take matters into your own hands, you face the consequences of doing things your way. And so Moses' legacy to us today says, don't take matters into your own hands. Understand the way that God wired you and then find out how God wants to use it instead of doing it our way. Second thing Moses would want to say to us today from early in the book of Exodus is that the desert is where God takes you to school. The desert is where God takes you to school. God wants to teach us something. He usually takes us to a desert to teach it to us. And being in the desert usually means we've been stripped away of the things we've liked. We've been stripped away of the things that are comfortable. And we're left in the desert. And we don't like being in the desert. And so the moment we're in the desert, we start praying and asking God to take us out of the desert. And God hears your prayers and God's answer is, why would I take you out? I'm the one who just put you there. Because I've got something to teach you. Moses had some things he needed to learn. It was God's destiny for him to lead the Israelites out of slavery. 
But Moses wasn't ready to do it yet. He had a whole bunch he needed to learn. And so God took him to his favorite learning institution, the desert. And Moses spent 40 years in the desert. And God taught him some stuff on the outside. Think about this. You live in the desert, you start learning some survival skills. You start learning how to build your own tents. You start learning how to, how to take cattle and sheep and how to make them into food. You start learning how to make your own clothes. Right? You start learning a whole lot of stuff in the desert. And where was Moses raised? In the palace. He was raised in a palace. Right? So I'm willing to bet as a young man raised in the palace, he never cooked any of his own food. He didn't make any of his own clothes. I'm willing to go so far as to say he never even put his own clothes on by himself. He had attendants who got him dressed every day, right? He grew up not doing anything for himself, and yet he was going to have to lead five million people through a wilderness and keep them alive? He didn't learn that in the palace. He learned that in the deserts. God taught him the things he needed to know to fulfill his purpose. And then God had to work on the inside as well. Because regardless of whether he was an Israelite or not, he was raised in a palace. He was an entitled rich kid, right? And with that came probably a lot of arrogance and pride and self-reliance. And God needed to teach him some humility. God needed to deal with his anger issue, right, that caused him to commit murder in the first place. And his anger issue would still get him in trouble later in life. But God needed to work on that. God needed to bring him up to a place where he knew the one true God, right? Pretty sure growing up in Pharaoh's palace, he didn't learn about the Israelite God. He learned about the gods of Egypt. He needed to learn about the one true God so he could fulfill his purpose for that one true God. Moses would say to us today, the desert is where God takes you to school. Don't pray to get out of the deserts. Pray for God to teach you what he needs to teach you. And pray that you learn it as quickly as possible so that your desert season can come to an end. Moses' desert season was 40 years. 40 years. You're like, I've had a bad month. I want to give up. 40 years before he discovered God's purpose for his life. The desert is where God takes you to school. Third thing that Moses would want to say to us from early in the book of Exodus is this. You are the answer to somebody's prayers. You are the answer to somebody's prayers. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. The people were crying out in their bondage. They were broken from their slavery. They were desperate for God to move on their behalf. And it says that God heard their prayers. God remembered his promises. God saw them. God knew what they were going through. And God had an answer for their prayers. The answer to their prayers was in school in the deserts. You are the answer to somebody's prayers. You are the miracle that somebody has been praying for. 
But in order to prepare you to be the miracle that somebody's been praying for, God might have to take you through the desert first. I ran a suicide prevention program for many years. Had a great passion for helping hurting and broken teenagers. But as I sought after running this program, we were in deep financial stress. We couldn't make any money. We were going under. I was praying to God, God, come on. I'm doing everything you told me to do. And we're still broke. We still don't have enough. I still don't know if we're going to make it. And yet in my desert season, I know that there were families with teenagers on the verge of suicide who were crying out to God, God, please do something. Please don't let my teenager die. Please reach my teenager in the midst of their depression. Please. And then I would show up in their teenager school and I would give a school assembly about suicide prevention. And after the assembly, they would come up to me and they would say, hey, I'm thinking about suicide. And I would sit down and I would begin to talk with them and intervene with them. In the midst of my desert, I was the answer to somebody else's prayer. And I want to encourage you that in the midst of your desert, you are the answer to somebody's prayer. You are the miracle that somebody is desperate for. But in order for you to fulfill that, you've got to keep going through the desert. You've got to keep learning, keep being equipped, keep trying to discover everything that God wants to teach you. Fourth thing that Moses wants to share with us is get to know God face to face. Get to know God face to face. Moses is wandering in the desert, taking care of his sheep, leading his sheep through the wilderness, and he sees this bush that's on fire. And the bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. And so Moses notices it, and it's a strange sight, and so he goes over to it, and in that burning bush, God begins to speak to him. And Moses has an encounter with the one true God of the nation of Israel. And after talking with him and God telling him, you're the answer to the people's prayers. God tells him, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and you're going to set my people free. Moses says this in chapter 3 and verse 13. Moses says to God, behold... I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. I think this is powerful because this is God fully introducing himself to Moses. Moses doesn't even know what to call him. Hey, if they say who sent me, what should I tell them your name is? Because I don't know your name. I grew up with a whole bunch of gods that all had different names. But you, I don't know. And God says, my name is I Am. Listen to this statement about this name, I Am. The name should thus be understood as referring to Yahweh being the creator and sustainer of all that exists, and thus the Lord of both creation and history, 
all that is and all that is happening, a God active and present in historical affairs. When God says, I am, he's saying, I am the creator. I am ever present. My hand is touching everything that is happening. I am holding everything together. I am who I am. And God introduces himself to Moses. And from that day forward, God be or Moses begins to build a face-to-face -face relationship with God. Later on in Exodus 33, it, it gives us this picture that Moses would walk out to this tent in the wilderness that he set up just to meet with God. And he would walk into this tent, and everybody saw him walking to the tent. Everybody else would stand outside their tents and just watch because they knew that God was going to show up. And Moses would go into the tent, and the cloud of God would cover the tent, and everybody would just begin to worship. But inside that tent was just Moses. And it says this in Exodus 33 and verse 11. It says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Moses was able to lead the people of God. Moses was able to fulfill his calling in life because he had a daily face-to-face -face relationship with God. And God would encourage you to do exactly the same. What God did for Moses, he wants to do for us. He wants, us to, meet, he wants to meet us every day, wherever our tent is. If your tent is your bedroom, if your tent is, 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 is the den in your house, if your tent is your balcony, if your tent is your backyard, if your tent is the beach, if your tent is the mountain, where do you go to meet with God? Because God wants to talk to you face to face like a friend. And the more he introduces himself to you and the more you understand the great I am, the more you will be able to fulfill your calling and the more you will be able to lead. A face-to-face -face relationship with God will unlock your calling and empower you to fulfill it. And the last thing I want to share with this, Moses would say to you, God sees you differently than you see you. God sees you differently. As Moses keeps, as, as God keeps telling Moses to go and Moses keeps asking questions. And he says, God, what if they won't believe me? And God says, what's in your hand? Moses says, a stick. He's a shepherd in the wilderness, right? So he's got a little shepherd's staff. God says, what's in your hand? He says, a stick. God says, throw that stick on the ground. And so he throws it on the ground and the stick turns into a snake. And then God says, grab the snake by the tail. Pretty sure Moses didn't learn that in the palace, right? He had to go all crocodile hunter and get this snake by the tail. So he grabs the snake by the tail and it turns back into a stick. But Moses is still doubting himself. He's still full of insecurity. He says, God, you can't send me. I have a stuttering problem. I can't talk very well. And when I get nervous, I stutter. And what does God say to him in Exodus 4.11? Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf? Or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God is telling Moses, I have called you. Do you not think that I will be with you? And whether your words come out clearly or whether they come out in a stutter, do you not believe that my power will be upon those words? Do you not believe that I will be able to touch your mouth and you use your mouth to make declarations to Pharaoh, to make declarations to the people of God? Don't you believe? You see, when Moses looked at himself, what did he see? 
He just saw himself as a guy holding a stick. He saw himself as somebody who just deserved nothing but a life of exile in the desert. He didn't see anything great in himself. He didn't believe that he would be able to speak. He didn't believe that he would be able to lead. But Moses would say to us today that God sees you differently than you see you. What you see is just a stick God sees as a chance for him to use his power through your life. Where you're insecure and see a weakness, God says, I see something I can touch and use for my glory. Because you'll know it's not coming from you. God sees you differently than you see you. Moses almost missed his calling. Because his insecurities were so great, he didn't want to be obedient to God. And he almost missed his calling because of it. God even had to have Moses' brother come and help him out just to get Moses through his insecurities. What a scary thought to think that we might miss out on our calling. We might miss out on the power and the purpose of God in our lives because our insecurity overrides our faith. Because when we look at ourselves, we don't see anything great. We just see a stick. We just see an exile. We just see a stuttering old man. But when God sees you, he sees you from the purity of heaven. He sees you from the purity of his creation. God doesn't forget anything. He hasn't forgotten the day that he created you. He hasn't forgotten the day that he formed you in your mother's womb. When he caused that first cell to come to life and to begin to split, and within that cell, he programmed your DNA. And he wired you specifically to fulfill a purpose. And your emotions and your temperament and your skill sets and your gifts and your strengths were all hardwired into that DNA at the moment that God created you in your mother's womb. Don't think that he forgot that day. Don't think that he looks at you now and judges you by what you see. When he looks at you now, he judges you by what he remembers from the day that he created you. And he looks at you and he says, I remember what I created you for. I remember the purpose over your life. I remember what I intricately wove into your DNA on that day. I remember and I still see it. And I see your weaknesses and flaws, but I don't see them as weaknesses and flaws. I see them as an opportunity for my glory. I don't just see a stick in your hand. I see a vessel through which my power can flow and you can reach a generation. It's what he saw in Moses and I believe that's what he sees in us today. Will you stand with me today as we close?